Are you ready to make a real difference in the world and especially to the people around you? Welcome to the Higher Purpose Podcast, where we celebrate the road less traveled in business, leadership, and life. We welcome you to another conversation that we believe will provide you with the insight and inspiration you need on your journey. Here's your host, Kevin Monroe. What a joy to have you join me today for another inspiring, and I believe insightful, full of insight conversation about higher purpose in business, leadership, and life, especially for you choosing or have chosen the road less traveled, doing business differently because of intention, on purpose. I recently met Sean Askinosi of Askinosi Chocolate. And as I was preparing for that first conversation, which was last week, episode 148, I realized one conversation simply wasn't going to be enough to cover everything I wanted to explore with Sean. Suffice it to say that Sean is a kindred soul, brilliant in that he shines and the way he thinks. And he is a waymaker, pioneering new paths forward in business and community. You'll find that in his book. He's the author of Meaningful Work, a quest to do great business, find your calling, and feed your soul. I highly and heartily recommend this book to you, and I have—I know several of you have already started reading the book, and I love that. It's not necessary that you hear episode 148 before indulging in this conversation. However, I believe after listening to this conversation, you'll have an insatiable desire to go back and listen to episode 148. And you probably have a hunger for some of the delicious Askinosi chocolate as well. Let's get to it. Well, Sean Askinosi, welcome back to the Higher Purpose Podcast. Thank you. I'm here. <laughs> I came back. That's right. Well, that's a good sign. You came back. That's right. And I hope you listening that you've come back for more, that you heard something and you've either you're just a regular or you know there's something that we started in last week's conversation that you want to hear more of or hear deeper. But before we do that, Sean, once again, I want to ground our time together in gratitude. So what's something you're grateful for in this moment? My wife and I downsized and our kids are all out of the house and we have a really small house, at least to me. It's a thousand square feet. But we have some acreage, and I'm really grateful for the water that's on our property and the chance, especially during this time, to build fires down by the river. And I love fire. I know that sounds weird, but I just like building little campfires and cooking on them. And it's something I'm very grateful for. I know that. It's quite a luxury to be able to, especially in this time, have some place where I can walk around and, you know, be free to do that. So I'm very grateful for it. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, I love fires too. We have a fire pit outdoors and we've been spending a lot of time. We've had a milder spring here in Georgia because sometimes it's already so hot you can't stand to be outdoors. But we've had a milder spring and we've had a lot of times by the fire pit and actually had some socially distanced family gatherings out there so oh cool yeah yeah cool. i like building fires and i also like chopping wood uh -huh. and so yeah well i like building fires <laughs> <laughs> so i want to start here sean are there any thoughts stirring in your heart or swirling in your mind from our first conversation that you want to continue as we delve into this one not really. We covered so many topics in depth, and I felt really good about what we were able to talk about and share. And so I'm ready for new questions and ready to jump off the diving board into something deep again. And if we are able to weave that back into the prior conversation, then that'll be fine. Okay. Well, I want to start with the question I did leave you with. I think it's a great place. This will just open so many doors. How much is enough? And when did you start thinking about the concept of enough rather than more? I started thinking about it inherently while I was on this pathway to something new or to the next vocation and inspiration. as 
the idea of financial success and notoriety began to lose its luster as to what success might really involve. And so that question of how much is enough, what is enough, was really inherent in my pathway. And so it was foundational when I started looking at what business I was going to start or buy or become part of. And this five-year journey from trial lawyer to chocolate maker. And by the way, I was still a practicing lawyer the whole time. I didn't stop. I didn't have some, you know, savings account or portfolio that I could just quit work for five years. I was still doing it as a professional and getting the job done. And all the while, trying to find out what it was going to be. Now, I will say, and we can talk about this whenever or to your choosing, but the question comes up is, why chocolate? How did that connect with this quest that you've been talking about? And the thing of it is, I didn't always have some lifelong dream of becoming a chocolate maker or even a lifelong love of chocolate. I liked it, but this volunteering at the hospital in the palliative care unit was a five-year process. We talked about it earlier. And it was during those years that this connection between my joy and sorrow paradoxically and mysteriously gave me clarity. It gave me clarity of purpose. Mm. And this is what the great teachers talk about when Gandhi said, if you want to find yourself, lose yourself in the service of others. And so this is what happened, this point of clarity. And so as I began to work on what a chocolate business would look like, the notion of how much is enough was just inherent in the question because I was leaving a lot. As a chocolate maker, then and now, I make about 15% of what I made as a lawyer. Mm. So I was wrestling with, not even really wrestling, but the notion of how much is enough was, it was just part of the question for me, mm. always, in mm. this path. Mm. Okay. I'm pausing, and our regular listeners, they're accustomed to the pause. Okay, I want to go from that. This is one of the topics I really wanted to dig deeper on. So let's use that as a springboard to this. In chapter five, you start with a story of somebody coming along, seeing the potential of Askinosi chocolate and wanting to help you blow it up. Take it to scale. And when you first heard that, the allure draws us, right? Oh, yeah. big is the goal, is what we've been taught. It's a siren song. Scale, growth, rapid growth is the temptation of our time, especially for entrepreneurs or people with an idea. In fact, it's such a a part of our culture that, you know, chambers of commerce want to know about scale because it means more jobs in the community and your friends and family want to know about it because it means you're going to be rich and seems to have all of these, well, and investors want to know because it's going to make them money, of course. And so that is what I'm kind of pushing against. So I'm not saying that all scale is bad because, of course, there are certain places right now, for example, we want treatment and vaccine at scale. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because it's relief of suffering. Yes, we want scale for malaria relief and for famine relief and disaster relief. Yes. But for the, let's just call it the common everyday small business or any size business, I'm pushing up against that and saying that there's a possibility that we should explore that we lose something, not automatically, but we often are going to lose something when we scale, when we value growth beyond everything else. And so that's what I'm talking about at the beginning of chapter five, because this person was about 
scale. And even though it was a good thing, it was this conversation was part of scaling our nutrition program. I mean, you know, and Chocolate University program, and we can do it all over Sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, these visions of grandeur were in my head about all that we could do. And parenthetically, I would note that when people tempt you with this notion of scale, when it's for ostensibly good purposes, like feeding children or alleviating some need, this is especially tricky because it looks like we should do this and it's in our voice, but I think it's oftentimes darkness. It's not good. I would go as far as saying that it's a dark temptation, especially tricky when it has to do with, you know, doing good works. Okay, so you go from there to a story of another encounter with a major retailer. And Mm -hmm. the retailer says something about you. Mm -hmm. Yes. It was an epiphany. Yes. I love it when somebody else says something about us that we know is true about us, but we've never been able to articulate it ourselves. Well, yeah, and especially given the fact that it was a huge retailer, and I can name it because I do in the book, it was Target. They had me come and speak to their marketing department, which is just the marketing department is 10 times bigger than my chocolate factory. (laughs) I enjoyed that. And my daughter, we went there and spoke and took them chocolate, took them chocolate. Yes. And they ended up wanting us to make a chocolate bar for them, for Target, after the speaking event. I was like, well, okay, can we make this work? It turned out to be, this is what happens. You know, they liked us so much that they hugged us and just about squeezed the air out of us Mm -hmm. in their affection for our company and what we stood for. And we ended up not making chocolate bars for them again. We did it once. We made 80,000 bars for Target. It was hard. It was a very disruptive part of our year, you know, to make chocolate for them. We didn't do it again, but we became friends with executives there and they were very nice. And one executive, their creative director, who's still there, Todd Waterbury was introducing me to another executive and said, man, they're doing this thing and they do this. And it's almost like reverse scale. I was like, Hey, (laughs) I like it. Hey, can I borrow that? Yes, you can. And I told him I was putting it in the book and he said, go for it. And here's this huge company with like 300,000 employees giving me, like you said, you know, this unexpected gift of articulation for what we're doing, reverse scale. That's what our company is about. That's what we do. I literally was talking about it yesterday with someone in our company. And it's especially important now in the pandemic. So yeah, that's kind of how it all started. Well, I want to invite you to go deeper because it's that. And then it's in the paragraph below that. Here is a line I highlighted, asterisk, went crazy on. He reaffirmed the value of human scale. Yeah. What is human scale and what does that mean to you and Eskinosi Chocolate? Well, you know, let's say I'm preaching to the choir here because you also speak about that, you know, often in your blog and on your website. And human scale is the thing that I think is at risk of loss when we scale. So, for example, when we scale, and if I were to do this, I might be so busy trying to find the person trying to find someone below me in the organizational chart who can take over what I'm doing so I can get to the next level in the organizational chart, supervising, writing checks, managing. And before I know it, I've lost the connection that really inspired me to begin the business in the first place or to work at the business in the first place. And it's lost. And before I know it, I'm looking around, I'm like, where did it go? And I'm not saying it's too late, but the risk is losing the human connection that reverse scale will offer. That's not guaranteed, but it's an offer. And so what that looks like in real time for me is it means that I don't delegate a lot of things. So, you know, for example, we spoke earlier of Chocolate University. This is a program where 
gosh, I started it the day we opened the doors to engage young people in our business that are in our neighborhood of our factory and in our town, Springfield, Missouri. And it's to inspire young people that business can be a force for good in the world and that there's a world beyond Springfield, Missouri. Many of the children that we work with are in poverty and we want to inspire them. We've done that now for, gosh, 13 years. And the high school program is one where we, it's very competitive, but juniors and seniors are eligible to apply for this. We take 15 students to Tanzania. They go through an immersion process in the summer to learn about our business and business in general. And then they have the opportunity of a literally a transformative experience there to meet cocoa farmers in a way that really nobody else would have the opportunity. I've been working with the same farmers there for over a decade. They greet these young people as if they're members of the family. So it's very unique. And I could delegate all of that. I could Good. somebody else. I've been there so many times. Traveling to Africa isn't new, but it is new. And I don't want to delegate it. And I know that when I go there and work with these young people and work with the farmers and have the opportunity to observe transformation, I experience those things that we spoke of in last episode, which were these glimpses of the divine. So why would I want to delegate that? Of course, I want other people in my company to have that experience if that's their desire. But I don't want to grow and scale so I don't have time to experience an encounter with the divine, if that's possible. And it is. And it's one of those things that we talked about that will survive everything, including the failure and death of my company, including the death of me. Mm, mm. And so it's a permanent force of energy that will not ever go away. And so I'm going to do that even at the risk of maybe not making as much money, maybe even not doing, can we say, as much good. God doesn't need me. I don't also want to suffer from some kind of delusion that, oh, I'm the only one. I'm the only one that can save the world. I'm the only one that can feed kids or do. No, I'm not. And when we suffer from that delusion, we end up burning out. This is what Satan wants. There is a related concept here that I'm so excited to invite you into this conversation. I've never seen this as a value in a company before, not using this word, but I believe this word really ties to that, kinship. You even have a chief kinship officer? <laughs> Explain and more importantly, share how kinship came to be such a vital part of the company's DNA. Kinship and mutuality are very important words to us. And the notion of kinship is really buried in the foundations of the company and part of the interconnected path of me personally and the company from the beginning, um, before it was even, you know, an idea in my mind. And this idea of kinship is another part of the human connection or the human scale of the business. I wouldn't have the opportunity for kinship if all I thought about was scale. And so kinship is something that's within the company. We want to engender that. So among each other, we want to help each other. We're small enough that we can do that. And of course it's not perfect. And, you know, but we try to be there for each other. We want to be there for our customers, especially now we want to be really aware and mindful of, the vulnerable parts of our supply chain, starting with our farmers and people here in America who are part of our supply chain and our neighborhood. And this gives us the chance to be connected to another person in a way that is not hierarchical, such that I'm the service provider, they are the service recipient. This is whether it's Chocolate University, whether it's the story we talked about in last episode about Liz, the young lady who grew up at the homeless shelter. I'm not hierarchically above her. I'm not the provider of this chocolate and, oh, aren't we great that we gave her and her brother samples of chocolate when they, no. Same is true for the school lunch program we have in the Philippines that we haven't talked about. Well, we're going to. It's been going on for a decade. We had one in, in Tanzania. We've provided over a million meals. But even in those instances, these were 
in partnership with the PTA and the schools, not us saying, oh, here's how we're going to do it. You do it this way. Us as the great white savior. It wasn't that way at all. And so what we do, and we've just most recently completed a building a preschool in Tanzania that the cocoa farmers run. They run it. They manage it. They were the ones that managed the construction of the school. Believe me, it would have been a lot quicker if we would have just done it our way. But this way of kinship, of mutuality, is a much more rewarding pathway in the long term. Why? Because it allows us and me to have a human connection with someone, as I said, not the healer and the healed, but people who stand shoulder to shoulder in mutuality and have the chance to demonstrate compassion to each other. This is what kinship is. Kinship is compassion. Mutuality is compassion. That's what it is. It's the chance to see it come across our horizon and across our periphery that we might not have otherwise seen if all we were concerned about was scaling and getting investors and partners and blah, blah, blah. Oh, man, I'm loving this, Sean. Okay, so, you know, we haven't really talked about the business of Eskinosi chocolate. I want to do that and talk about this in the context. Bean to bar, this idea of developing long-term relationships, kinships with the farmers to the extent that you do profit sharing with the farmers. And you said relationships make for a better product. Mm-hmm. But let's unpack some of that. Let's go back to Khalil Gibran. And we spoke of him in the last episode. Philosopher Khalil Gibran said, in addition to what we loved about, we were talking in the last episode, he also said that if we bake a bread with indifference, we bake a bitter bread that feeds but half man's hunger. Say that again. Okay. If we bake a bread with indifference, we bake a bitter bread that feeds but half man's hunger. And what this means is that it doesn't matter if it's bread, podcasts, books, consulting, chocolate. It's all the same thing. Are we going to bake that with indifference and end up with a bitter product? No. No, we're not going to do that. And one of the ways that we can have the chance at not doing that is through relationships with people. It's through human connection. And for us, one of the foundational places for that to happen is with cocoa farmers. And so there are like farmers in Ecuador, one farmer I've been working with and buying beans from and visiting every year for 15 years. And now I'm, you know, dealing with his grandkids. And so in the case of Tanzania, it's 10 years. In the case of the Philippines, it's 12 years, same people. And so don't think for a minute that I haven't been checking on them and talking to them every week through the middle of this pandemic. It's also something we share. We share this too. And so what this means is who we are as people and the product or service that we deliver are inseparable. We can't peel them apart even if we wanted to. Wait a minute. Please repeat that because this is a tweetable point. So the product or service that we deliver is inseparable from who we are. We can't peel them apart even if we wanted to. And it looks like this. I could give my cocoa beans my equipment, my recipe to somebody else down the street or to in another city, and they could make chocolate. But if it was lacking intention, or the things that we've been talking about in the last few minutes, it would not be the same chocolate. It wouldn't be the same. I'm not saying it wouldn't taste good or whatever. It wouldn't be the same. And so this is not some woo-woo new age concept. This is the truth. It was true when farmers were caring about the crops and and do care about the crops that they bring to farmers markets today or, you know, 200 years ago. This is not new. It's not new. And so if we remember it and we place it as a priority in our life and in our business, then we're going to have a good product. 
it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be a good product, and it's going to be one that we're proud of, and we're going to also be proud of the relationships that went into it, that went into the result. Yeah. Okay, so you have a saying that builds into all of this. It's not about the chocolate. It's about the chocolate. (laughs) Unpack that a bit, because when I first heard that, Sean, I really didn't get it. It took a moment. This is this notion of non-dualism. And this idea of non-dualism is a thread throughout our business, throughout my practice, my life right now. And you could say it's an Eastern concept or perhaps a Buddhist concept, although I could show you and point to places in Christianity where this is true as well. But it's this idea that what we've been talking about, all of these things, it's not about the chocolate. It's about these farmers that I care about. They care about me. They've been Skyping me. They want to find out if I'm okay in this pandemic. You know, they care about who I am and they care about seeing me and being my friends. This preschool that we built for 300 kids in the village that they had no preschool there, nothing, nothing like that. No early childhood education. And now they have it. That's not about chocolate. The relationships that we have with these farmers, that's not about chocolate. We've over a million meals provided in the school lunch program that's sustainable with zero donations. That's not about the chocolate. Or the kids that we've engaged with for the last 10 years in Chocolate University, that's not about chocolate. But on the other hand, it's everything about chocolate. It has every single thing to do with the chocolate. Why? Because we are laser focused on making the absolute best tasting chocolate that we can possibly make. It's got to be as near perfect as it can be. We care so much about the quality of the bean and the way we roast the beans and how we grind the beans and what kind of sugar we use and how we package it and what packaging we use, that it's environmentally friendly packaging, you know, that there is no slave labor in our product, that we share profits with our farmers. We open our books to the farmers. That's about making this perfect chocolate. So it's totally about the chocolate. I want it to be the best tasting chocolate that you have had. And I want you to enjoy the flavor of it. And that is about the chocolate, but it's not about the chocolate. Okay, so I'm going to have to have another bite of chocolate while we talk about this. All this right. is a fun podcast. I've never eaten chocolate on a podcast before. Well, I'll start every episode. Yeah, it needs to be a habit. I'm going to join you. So this is just such a rich, deep conversation. Two questions I want to ask, but I'm just going to ask them one at a time. Let's talk about a product of change what you're doing with the schools, what you're doing in communities, and how that's different from corporate social responsibility. A product of change started this program in the Philippines, in Davao, Philippines, on the island of Mindanao, where I started going in 2008. And we had a an affiliate school there that was kind of a chocolate university affiliate school, and I'd been going there. And I was asking the teachers and principal about the nutritional status of the children, which you would have thought may have been my first question when I visited, but it wasn't. And we were looking at (laughs) curriculum. And they talked about the number of kids who were, as the United Nations would define, severely malnourished. And I was like, wow, what can we do? So in that program in 2008, we started The PTA in this little jungle school, which, by the way, is way more active than any PTA in my hometown. (laughs) Um, And so the PTA made this product called Tablia, and it's a traditional Filipino hot chocolate drink. They drink it there, and it's just made of a disc of ground-up cocoa beans with no sugar. They provide sugar. It looks like this. It's just a round disc, but you can drop it in hot water or milk and mix it up. So they made this, and they put it on our container. And so we sold a unit of this, 10 of these discs, I think it was 10 bucks at the time, and that provided over 150 school lunches for these kids, just a unit of this. And so what that means is the PTA is making a product, putting it on our container. We sell it, and we give all, not just the profit or whatever, all of the sales proceeds went back to the school every month. So it was totally sustainable, no donations. And we did this and called it a product of change because it was a very, it is, and we're doing it today, but it's a very unique way of funding a project without donations. And it's 
in the true spirit of capitalism and entrepreneurship. And we were careful. We sent it monthly. We reconciled the account, making sure that the receipts matched up and they were buying the food. The teachers were making the food for the kids. We monitor the height and weight of these kids so we can track their progress and leaving this definition of severe malnourishment. Then we started it at a second school. That first school taught the second school how to do it. We left the first school because they're on their own doing it now. Now we're at our third school. Second school is on their own. We're small. Remember what I was saying. We're only 18 people in the whole company. That's it. So now we're feeding 300 kids a day. And now I'm really proud of this. And I want to mention school is not in session. The school was closed even last month because of the pandemic in the Philippines. But the teachers there continued to deliver food to these kids who were severely malnourished. And so we funded that and continue to do that. And then school will start back up again, hopefully, and we'll keep funding this. But then we did it in Tanzania at a high school with a thousand kids who were only meeting, eating one meal a day and we sold rice. But the rice, again, the PTA put together the rice, one kilo bags of rice, $16.50. We sold it, put all the money back. That was 200 lunches for the kids who weren't eating lunch at all. So this is a product of change. This is what we do. It's part of who we are. So I'm talking to teachers in the Philippines every week about this. Oh, Shaw, thanks for sharing this because this, when I'm reading this, I was just gripped by this because I want to tie this back to a comment we were on maybe 20 minutes ago about scale. You are scaling this in a tremendous way for tremendous impact and good in those communities that only builds character and dignity and all kinds of possibility into this and independence rather than writing them a check. Exactly. And I'm glad you used the word dignity because it's one of the things that we say. In fact, our chief kinship officer, Missy Gilner, who I was literally talking with before we hopped on today, we were talking about this dignified giving. Mm. That's what we call this. And I can say, you know, and especially... Well, since the book came out, we made the Askenosi Foundation, which is a nonprofit, and we did that so that we could capture people who share our passion about these things that you and I have been talking about and make tax-deductible contributions because we can't fund all of these things with our money, like taking kids to Africa, that's expensive. (laughs) Because half of these kids, I didn't mention this, but half the kids that go are on scholarship. We pay the whole thing. Wow. Kids are very bright, but often very poor and have never even been out of the state in some cases. So anyway, we're doing that. So when we take contributions to build a preschool, we need to do that in the form of a tax deductible contribution. So she's the executive director of our foundation as well. And that has been a really great experience to be able to see. And this idea of scale came up yesterday in my conversation with Missy. And it went like this. Look, The foundation can't get ahead of the intention of the business. So, in other words, yes, there are great projects that we can undertake, and there's this, and there's that, and there's tremendous need almost everywhere we look, here in the United States, in Tanzania, wherever it is we're working. But we have to remember that we want to get much better, much better, at the projects that we've already undertaken and not be attracted to the shiny object in our periphery that we might think, oh, this is a new thing. Let's go tackle this. I'm very much about perfecting what we've already committed ourselves to. So we have after-school programs in Tanzania. Now we have six after-school programs in the village and the surrounding village area. In three schools, we have an after-school program for boys called Enlightened Boys and one for girls called Empowered Girls. This has been going on since 2011. We run those programs, we staff them, we pay for them, the whole thing. And I told her yesterday, I was like, please let's not get ahead of ourselves. We have to remember to pull back and to get better at what we're doing before we 
start trying to, this is very, very important to me. But I want to go back to something. The communities you're doing this in are communities that you have relationships with because that's where the farmers are from whom you're buying the beans. Yes. In fact, the woman on the front of the package of the chocolate that you're eating right now from Tanzania, her name is Mama Mpoki. She is the chairwoman of the cooperative. So it's run by a woman. There's 60 people in the cooperative. Her husband is my friend. I write about him in the book. He's an elder in the community. His name is Mr. Livingston. But let me tell you, to illustrate the point that you were making about the relationships with the cocoa farmers, he's a cocoa farmer. About two years ago, I was in his house. There were several of us there. He and his wife hosted us, which they do every time we're there. And he wanted me to explain nursing homes. This is a concept that is completely foreign to the farmers there. They just didn't understand it. And so we were talking about it and I was explaining, you know, why people go to nursing homes. And he said to me, when that time comes for you, we want you to move here. Wow. We want to take care of you. We will take care of you. We will come and visit you so often you can't imagine. And we will be there for you. Well, I mean, what? What else could I want? What else is there? Do I need to make more money? Do I need to, what, what's it going to be when something like that happens? Mm. This wasn't an empty offer. It was the truth. Well, at lunch today, my wife shared something with me that broke my heart. She said, honey, I saw stories this morning that in nursing homes in the United States of America in 2020, people are being diagnosed with failure to thrive. Yeah, because yeah. they've been abandoned because of this COVID-19 crisis and no one can visit them. Right. We're familiar with failure to thrive in neglected infants. Yes. There's a crisis of loneliness that existed before Corona and it will be unfortunately perpetuated by this crisis and it will exist after the crisis. And this is why you can probably tell that after the length of our conversation, you've read the book. One of the things that I'm attracted to is community and solitude, both. So this is why I'm attracted to the Trappist Monastery an hour from my house. It's both community and solitude. I live out of town. You know, I live on acreage with in solitude. And yet here I am in Tanzania and I'm completely uplifted by the opportunity to be part of their community. And they consider me part of their community. Well, explain one other word a moment and the encounter you had about radical hospitality and the hotel that was full. Which I'm trying to remember which one. It may have been with the same family and you were on a visit and you said the hotels aren't, don't confuse that with what you're thinking of as the Holiday Inn Express or Hampton Inn, but you had nowhere to stay. You were there for a visit, had a meeting, and you said, I have nowhere to stay. And was it this family? They opened their home? It was another family that opened their home to me They're in the same village. And this was quite an amazing experience. There's a little mat on the floor that they made up for me, and they went to a neighboring these are sort of like, many of them are mud and straw huts. And they went to a nearby one to get a special little bedspread to put on this mat, you know, because I was a guest. And they also went to a nearby village to get a lamp. They didn't have electricity, but I guess they thought a lamp in the room would anyway. But <laughs> they went to a great deal of trouble to make me feel as though I was an honored guest. And I did feel like that. And so I heard noises throughout the night. I don't sleep very well anyway. I didn't sleep that great that night. But what gave me peace while I was there is how much they cared about me. And I could hear in the distance drums and I could hear choir practice. You know, all of this sort of carried down into the valley. That was just amazing, you know, to in the darkness, be able to hear the voices, hear the people, know that this family cared about me. And 
is an amazing experience that I won't forget. But this idea of radical hospitality, which I would put that in that category, and I found this repeatedly in Tanzania, which is, I mean, anecdotally, it's my experience, but I have found that the farmers there repeatedly for over a decade have given and given and given and given to me out of their poverty. And I have found them to be so concerned that I feel comfortable and that I am welcomed that they're so concerned about it. As I said a moment ago, it's uplifting because I know that they're not doing this, but it's not the Ritz-Carlton. They don't have abundance. And so they're giving out of the poverty, the giving out of what they have. That's quite a feeling. In fact, I think for many of us in America and North America, it's hard for us to receive. It's hard to receive that. And it has been for me because I think, you know, in the beginning I thought to myself, you know, gosh, they shouldn't do that for me. And, you know, that's too much. But I know that they want to do it. They care about me. And I have experienced this radical hospitality to the extent that I have a theory that in the next 100 years, the North American and Western cultures will receive missionaries from Africa who have been able to preserve their culture and their traditions of rural Africa, and they will come to teach us and teach us how to have joy, how to deliver hospitality, and how to experience community. I think that that's quite possible, that they will be missionaries on our land, teaching us these things that we've forgotten. Yeah. Oh, Sean, so what a delightful conversation. There's so much more, so much more. I want to ask you one more question, and then we'll start wrapping this up. Because I think this is really interesting about your business model, and I think I know people listening to this that would be intrigued by this distinction between direct trade that you embrace and fair trade. Mm -hmm. Fair trade, of course, started many decades ago, 50, 60 years ago. And when it began, and I can only speak to my familiarity, which is with cocoa and fair trade. I'm not familiar with coffee and fair trade and fair trade products, but I do know cocoa. And in the cocoa bean world, when fair trade started, it was great for the environment, for the local economy, for the worker. But unfortunately, now fair trade has become so ubiquitous that it's become a victim of its own good marketing. And by that, I mean, when you know, you're pushing your cart, well, back in the old days, when you were pushing your cart down the aisle, and you would have these choices on the shelf, and maybe... One would say fair trade on the package, and you might think to yourself, oh, wow, that's a little bit more expensive than the other one. I think I'm going to buy that, and I'm going to feel good about myself. I'm buying this fair trade thing. Well, unfortunately, the little bit price that you've paid or the price that someone paid in this complex supply chain might have been somewhat of a premium. What studies have indicated is that it's not finding its way to the farmers. And so if it's not finding its way to the farmers, then who's getting it? Well, people are peeling it off in all ways in middlemen and women along the supply chain. And so if the farmers aren't getting it, then I think it's misleading for people to have this false sense of feel good that they're doing the right thing when the farmers who they are going to care about are not getting it. So what we did is modeled our direct trade practices after a mentor of mine in the coffee business, which is Intelligentsia Coffee, based in Chicago. They pioneered direct trade in coffee in the 90s. And I became friends with them in the beginning of my business. And they helped me with, you know, some contracts and things like that. But essentially, for us, direct trade, it's not a legal term. It's not a regulated term. It's how we define it or how anyone else who chooses to practice it would define it and how they represent themselves on their product or their website or whatever. But it's essentially involving travel. So we travel every year, except this year, to the farms. I might note, too, 
I was supposed to go to the Philippines in January. It would have been my 45th origin trip since I started the company. But there was a volcano that erupted near the Manila airport, and my flights were all canceled. And then I was going to reschedule for three weeks later, and then the pandemic hit. So it's been very unusual for me to not go to these places. So I was supposed to be in Ecuador three weeks ago. Didn't go there. Didn't go to the Amazon. I was supposed to take all the kids to Tanzania in July. We can't do that. So, but the travel to the place and continuing the human connection with the farmers is part of direct trade, as is paying them a fair price. So we measure and monitor what the world market price is, but more importantly, what is the farm gate price? That's what is the price that the farmer would get at their farm gate if they were to sell it to anybody. And what we have determined is on average, we've paid 55% more to farmers than they would have otherwise received. And we put this all in a transparency report on our website, and people can read it. It's an audited report, and we list out what we pay, what we've paid every farmer, what the world market price is, what the farm gate price is, and we profit share. And it's not just profit sharing. We open our books to them. We practice open book management in my business, always have. I did that as a trial lawyer. Everybody in my firm knew what our income was, what the expenses were. We teach financial literacy. And so the farmers, when I go to Tanzania, our financial statements are in Swahili. Yeah. And they always have been. In Spanish when I'm in Ecuador and the Philippines are in English. But So the farmers can understand how we calculate this profit share that we're giving them. And then we list that on our transparency report. This is part of direct trade, as is making sure that the farmers are using environmentally safe practices, so not using chemicals and pesticides, that they're growing organically. That's a very long-winded way of saying this is what direct trade is. No, it's a beautiful answer. And there's so many other things we could delve into. Thanks for this incredibly rich conversation that I know is inspiring people on multiple levels. What I want to ask as we wrap this up, what would you say, out of all of your journey, your experience, your quest, to encourage someone else who's on their quest for meaningful work? To those on their quest for meaningful work, I would say don't be discouraged by being discouraged. Mm -hmm. And take heart that you will find your way. And when you're particularly discouraged, and it seems as though it's very dark and you can't see what the next move might be to find someone who needs you. This is very counterintuitive, but to find someone who needs you. And if it's possible for you to find someone who needs you, that you can serve out of your own broken heart in the same place that broke your heart, whether it was a week ago or 50 years ago, do it. And the mystery will begin to reveal itself to you. I promise this. This will happen. It's not, I'm not saying, if you hear me saying, oh, you mean so I'm just supposed to go serve somebody so I can find my next move? No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that if you do this, you, you will. will. You will. Oh, what a beautiful way to wrap this up. For folks that want to know more, to eat the chocolate, where do we point them? Askanosi.com would be a great place. There's a lot of information there about our company, our business model, our practices, and all of our products are there. We ship all over the country. That's a great way. And seanaskanosi.com is my blog and other things. And my email address is on there. Hello at Sean Askinosi. And people can contact me and I'll engage with them. And I enjoy doing that. So that's the best way. Thank you, Sean. This has just been such joy. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. I really, really appreciate the conversation. Wow. It's my hope that you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. What beautiful insights Sean had to share with us today. A few of the ideas continue to resonate in my mind, and you know I'm always intrigued to know what's resonating in your heart and mind. 
Chief for me was this idea of kinship, which is closely related to the idea of connection. This keen insight that relationships make for a better product. Think about that. Relationships, the relationships you have with the people both in the supply chain and the people that benefit, receive, participate in the services or the product you produce, provide, are made better. The whole value chain is enhanced through relationships. That is a meaningful idea. Have you ever had one of those encounters where you heard someone say something about you that you had not yet found the words to describe the way they described it. But the moment you heard it, you knew it was true. And those words resonated with you. Well, I loved Sean sharing his encounter with the VP of Target as he's listening to this VP talk to another VP about their company. And he said their company is about reverse scale, touching one person at a time and keeping their soul. The next paragraph in the book, Sean talked about what this drove home to him was the point of the value of human scale. I hope you let that soak in. The value of human scale. We've had so much emphasis on growing big and scaling as the primary measures of success that we've lost this. Many have lost this value of human scale. So I just love this. As it ties back to last week, we talked about defining success, and maybe this helps you define success and your path forward differently. And then this other bit. It's not about the chocolate. It's about the chocolate. How does that apply to you and your quest and your work? You know, for me, I was really struggling with this until I thought about how it applies to this podcast. It's not about the podcast. It's about the podcast. You know, it's not about the podcast because it's about the relationships that are formed through this medium, the conversations, connections, and collaborations that happen in and through this. But those would not have happened had not the podcast been a catalyst for that. Wow, it's not a circular way, but it just brings this deeper way to look at what you do. So I invite you to think about that. What does that invite you to think about differently in your life, in your business, through your work? As always, you know I love hearing how conversations here on the podcast resonate with you and what they lead you to think, explore, and more importantly, to do. As always, you know you have the open invitation to reach out to me. You can do that by email, kevin at higherpurposepodcast.com. You can call or text me, 678-744-5111. Thanks for joining today, and until we connect again, I hope you continue your quest to do great business, find your call, and feed your soul. Thanks for joining today, and thank you for being a difference maker. It truly matters. What could 10 days of gratitude do for you? Find out what hundreds of people have experienced and make a change that can last a lifetime at thegratitudechallenge.community because it's better when we do things together.